Chapters sixty six and sixty seven of Taken at the Flood by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sixty six Sir Aubrey's Return. There was more in Mrs. Carford's manuscript, but what remained told only of her difficult service with the victim of that conspiracy in which she had been an unwilling actor. She described the misery of long and weary days spent with the invalid who at times was fully conscious of the wrong that had been done him and asserted his identity and his claims as master of parian place with vehemence and insistence while at other times he lapsed into a state of dull indifference vacant-minded unconscious of anything beyond his physical comfort his dinner his wine the temperature of his rooms the warmth of his garments in every stage of his feelings mrs carford was at hand patient unfailing his comforter and friend and to her in his lighter moments he clung with sincere affection his guilty wife never approached him shrinking from him with as deep a horror as if the quiet room where he sat had been the chamber of death mrs carford neglected no care left no duty undone that might lighten the burden of that joyless life this ceaseless labour this continual anxiety she accepted meekly as her penance for the errors of her past life her deepest sorrow was for her daughter's guilt her never-ending fear was for that day of retribution which she felt convinced must come sooner or later to the sinner all this was recorded at length in the manuscript which sylvia's mother had given to edmund standon he rose from the perusal of that paper with the feeling that every hope and desire of his life had ended existence lay before him a blank and sunless waste to be traversed every star that had once lighted and beautified the distance extinguished for ever what was he to do with his life henceforward go back to monkhampton resume his situation in the bank work for his daily bread live through all the scandal that would follow the revelation of sylvia's crime see the woods of parian place in the distance and be reminded every day how she whom he loved so fondly was banished for ever from that scene in deepest disgrace and shame existing only as a nameless wanderer none knew where no he could not return that question was decided easily enough he had two hundred pounds in hand money he had saved from his salary his wants in his mother's house being very few he would go abroad wander far from the scene of his disappointments for a year or so and when he came back to england he would get a situation either in london or one of the northern counties where he would find himself among strangers who would never torture his ears with the name of sylvia Perriam it would be easy now for him to get employment in any english bank with such testimonials as he could obtain from the chiefs of the western union he wrote to mr sanderson the monkhampton manager touched briefly on the trouble that had changed all his plans surrendered his position in the bank and engaged mr sanderson's friendship in the future when he should have occasion to obtain a new employment he wrote also to mrs standon telling her in the simplest words without passion or self-abasement how cruel a disappointment had overtaken the hopes that had made him an exile from his home he acknowledged that this blow seemed like retribution for his dishonoured vows to esther but he put forward no plea for forgiveness he hinted at no hope for the future he told his mother that dear though she must ever be to him his life was likely to be spent far from dean house i shall come to you gladly whenever you may summon me my dear mother he wrote but i shall only come in obedience to your summons and i never again can enter dean house except as a guest you will say and rightly that i have fooled away all my chances of happiness but you shall never have occasion to say that i am leading an unmanly or dishonourable life 
i am going on the continent again to try and forget this latest grief amidst unfamiliar scenes my career after my return to england will be one of honourable industry and however you may blame your son for his past errors with god's help you shall have no cause to blush for him in the future these two letters dispatched edmund standon felt that he had but one more duty to do that duty was to provide for mrs carford's declining days she was helpless friendless dying and anxious as he was to leave england he could not go without doing all that benevolence could do to ensure the peace of her last hours he took a famous physician down to hanker's heath to ascertain whether mrs carford could safely be moved to more comfortable quarters but the doctor told him decisively that any attempt to remove the patient would only precipitate the inevitable end she was dying tender and skilful nursing might alleviate the sufferings of her last hours it could do no more edmund made all necessary arrangements took all charges upon himself and remained at a village inn in the immediate neighbourhood of mr ledlam's cheerless abode in order to ensure the patient's welfare by frequent visits to the arbour he had not long to wait for the melancholy end before the week was over mrs carford's troubled life had reached its penitent close james carford was summoned ere the end and came in time to breathe words of forgiveness into the dying woman's ear and to implore pardon for his own unkindness and neglect which he confessed might have done much to influence his wife's conduct we were both to blame i dare say he said and i may have been the worse sinner james carford and edmund standon returned to london together after the quiet funeral in the village churchyard during the journey mr carford alias carew took occasion to inform mr standon of the abject position to which his daughter's misfortunes had reduced him i have been living like a gentleman for the last two years he said and now i find myself brought face to face with starvation my daughter had no thought of my destitute position when she fled with all the property at her command unless i can join her in her exile i know not what is to become of me you need not fear starvation answered edmund i have forfeited the inheritance that would have been mine for your daughter's sake and must henceforward work for my living but i am not afraid to promise you fifty pounds a year for the rest of your life and that income will save you from starvation you are too good mr stanton ah if my unfortunate child had but seen things more clearly how much happier for her to have been your wife than to have bartered peace for splendour you forget mr carew that you rejected my offer with contempt pardon that act of folly mr stanton remember how little i knew of you i saw before me only a foolish young man over head and ears in love rash impetuous ready to sacrifice his prospects and involve the object of his affections in his own ruin had i known your steadfast and noble character your power to win a position for yourself i should have been the last to hesitate however it is worse than idle to regret past errors poor sylvia would to heaven i knew where to find her edmund sighed and looked out of the window guilty sylvia his heart bled for her worthless though she was if she had sinned against him in the beginning her last and heaviest sin had been committed for his sake hard if he had not pitied her those diamonds mused mr carew they must have been worth three or four thousand pounds and that poor child wandering alone and unprotected when she might at least have had a father's care 
he thought of that noble income that splendid home which sylvia had lost by an act of guilt and folly that seemed to him unparalleled in the history of woman's wrong-doing not long had mr carew been permitted to enjoy the luxuries of the establishment in willoughby crescent mr bayne appeared on the morning after sylvia's flight and that abode and its belongings had as it were dissolved and vanished before his coming just as lamia's air-built palace melted when that serpent woman was denounced by the corinthian philosopher shadrach bayne paid and dismissed all the servants except mrs stringfold whom he sent back to parium with her youthful charge without enlightening her as to his reasons for so doing he informed mr carew with extreme politeness that it would be necessary for him to find other quarters forthwith and at two o'clock in the afternoon he restored the keys of number seventeen willoughby crescent to the house agent with all monies due to him on account of that dwelling-house mr carew pressed for an explanation whereupon the steward in briefest plainest words told the story of his daughter's wrong-doing i decline to believe this statement until it is proved to my satisfaction said mr carew how do i know that this is not a plot of your hatching it is easy enough for you to assert that the surviving brother is sir aubrey and not mr parium there is one piece of evidence which ought to be convincing to you mr carew answered the steward unmoved what evidence sir your daughter's flight james carew was silent he removed from willoughby crescent to a single room in the shabbiest by-street of that aristocratic neighbourhood even cities of palaces have their outer fringe of hovels where wealth's pauper dependents may find shelter a sad change for mr carew to find himself living in a shabby lodging on his scanty reserve fund and with faintest hope of future comfort a brief statement of the main facts concerning mordred's death had been made by mrs carter the day before she died in the presence of edmund stanton mr ledlam and mr bayne who came to the arbour expressly to obtain this confession he had no knowledge of that manuscript in which sylvia's mother had written the entire history of the conspiracy this document signed and witnessed mr bayne had allowed mrs carter to expire in peace while he remained in attendance upon sir aubrey at the chief inn at hatfield awaiting the time when it would be wise to remove the baronet to devonshire happily there was no one interested in disputing sir aubrey's return to life the heir at law would be no worse off for his resurrection and there were no proceedings in chancery to be feared from him nor could the question of identity give much trouble all the old parium place servants had been excluded from the rooms which their master inhabited after his supposed death mrs carter had performed the most menial services rather than suffer even a housemaid to enter those prison-like apartments those old servants who had waited on sir aubrey for years would not fail to recognize him there was mr stimson too who with self-abasement must needs confess the cheat that had been put upon him altogether there could be little doubt as to sir aubrey's reception at parium place one important question remained to be decided was the wretched woman who had fled to be pursued by the law was any penalty to be exacted from her for her iniquity here mr bayne found himself at fault his master and client was weak in mind and body certainly in no condition to answer such a question as this finding himself obliged to determine on the course to be followed mr bayne pursued his customary plan in all such difficulties he referred the matter to his own interests and decided that he had nothing to gain by hunting the miserable fugitive or by dragging sir aubrey's sufferings and sir aubrey's wrongs before a court of law all the law could do would be to restore sir aubrey to the position from which he had been ousted if sir aubrey could be restored without the aid of the law 
why incur the expense and scandal of law proceedings this is how shadrach bain argued he had tasted all the sweets of revenge and could afford to be negatively merciful to the woman who had scorned him let her go let her starve forgotten and unknown in some foreign city or let her win shameful fortune by the beauty he had once admired her fate could signify very little to him the estate which he had once hoped to win through his influence over her was now removed beyond the limit of his hopes he had only his stewardship to look to but sir aubrey's helplessness and his son's infancy made the perium stewardship a very comfortable thing i shall be a rich man before i die thought shadrach bain though i may never be called the squire skilful medical treatment and careful nursing wrought a considerable improvement in sir aubrey and by the time he had been a week in mr bain's charge at the hatfield inn he had become pretty much the man he was at perium before the steward left for his second journey to cannes his speech and appearance were alike improved memory had in a considerable measure returned he spoke of familiar things asked for his old servants was eager to return to perium and never failed to recognize shadrach bain but on one subject he was curiously silent his wife's name never passed his lips mr bain waited another week by the end of which the patient's improvement was still more marked he then wrote to the housekeeper at perium announcing his return with mr ledlam's patient no mention of sir aubrey's name and requesting that mr stimson might be at the place to receive the invalid on the following evening perium was looking its fairest in the glow of an autumnal sunset when sir aubrey returned to that peaceful abode of his forefathers sir aubrey whose name had been inscribed on one of the massive oaken coffins in the perium vault whose pompous latin epitaph with an error in an ablative case when was there a latin epitaph without an erroneous termination of substantive or adjective according to some learned caviller adorned the chapel wall mr bain and his charge drove from the station in the yellow chariot which had been sent to meet them by the steward's order sir aubrey gazed upon that familiar scene in silent rapture all the consciousness remaining to that weakened brain was aroused by the sight of home how often in his joyless comfortless captivity his thoughts had wandered dimly backward to these scenes and with how keen an agony had he told himself that he should see them no more he turned away from the landscape at last and clung to his steward's arm with a sudden pang of fear you won't let them take me away again will you bain you've always been a good servant to me i tell every one so you've improved the property as your father did before you and kept the servants up to the mark and not wasted money on fanciful repairs i've always praised you you won't let me be sent away will you bain if i am mad i am not mad enough to do any one any harm and i am aubrey they may talk themselves dumb but they can never shake me from the certainty of that one fact i know my own name mordred is a poor creature my brother but a poor creature i will never submit to be called mr perriam your brother mordred is in his grave replied mr bain and you are sir aubrey perriam sole owner and master of this place you shall never leave it again save at your own wish poor mordred dead bless my soul murmured sir aubrey 
he was a poor creature but i was fond of him and he was fond of me a man's hold on his own life relaxes when he loses his only brother they were at the house by this time all the servants were assembled in the hall according to mr bain's instructions and mr stimson was also in attendance the outer world was still steeped in sunset's fading glory but the lamps in the dusky old hall were lighted and shone full on the faces of the travellers one startled cry broke from almost every lip as the baronet appeared among his household leaning on mr bain's arm and supported on the other side by a valet whom the steward had engaged for him at hatfield sir aubrey perriam yes replied mr bain sir aubrey perriam i thought such faithful servants would hardly fail to recognize a master they had served so long sir aubrey perriam in spite of lady perriam's pretended widowhood in spite of the lying epitaph in perriam church in spite of the funeral and the will which i read in this house sir aubrey alive and among you once more the coffin that was carried out of those doors held the body of sir aubrey's brother mordred for the last eight months sir aubrey has been the victim of a most foul conspiracy but i have unearthed the plotters i have unravelled their mystery i have brought your old master back again to you and to his rights and his home cheers long and loud for sir aubrey and his deliverer mr bain felt all the sweetness of being a hero mr stimson advanced pale and scared of aspect and examined the countenance of his old patient good heavens how could i have been so much mistaken he exclaimed yes it is indeed sir aubrey those artful women they kept the room dark and contrived to distract my attention there ought to have been an inquest sir aubrey can you ever forgive me i forgive everybody said the baronet feebly looking round with an agitated expression and now i think i should like to go to bed bain you'll stop with me won't you you'll take care you'll not let them remove me while i'm asleep sir aubrey you are beneath your own roof you are sole master here this house holds no secret enemy now you can sleep in safety you are surrounded by faithful servants the old man looked at them with a faint smile i thank them kindly for remembering me he said and then looking about him as if he suddenly remembered something i should like to see my son he exclaimed mrs tringfold came with her youthful charge the youthful charge somewhat cross and sleepy having been kept awake against his will for the last hour in case sir aubrey should ask to see him the old man looked down at him tenderly there was no imbecility in that fond gaze but sentient affection a father's deep and silent love i shall sleep better now that i have seen my boy he said now that i know we two are under the same roof never let anybody part us again sixty seven since there's no help come let us kiss and part edmund standon went back to his hotel after that last journey from hatfield and made all arrangements for starting by the continental train next morning he was going to paris and thence on to marseilles and possibly to algiers he went to seek forgetfulness among strange scenes and a strange people were not a feature of the landscape not a word spoken near him would recall the english home from which he was self-banished or the hopes he had lost 
he went into the reading-room after dinner and turned over the day's newspapers with but the faintest interest in anything he read in them when something happened which changed all his plans and put that thought of a winter in algiers out of his head for the present the following brief advertisement appeared among various enigmatic appeals in the second column of the times supplement not the day's paper but a two days old supplement as edmund discovered afterwards when he looked at the date the friends of a lady now lying seriously ill at the pier hotel new haven are requested to communicate with the proprietress the lady arrived by the afternoon train from lewis on thursday september tenth and has been suffering from fever and delirium ever since her linen is marked s p she wears a large diamond cross and has in her possession a morocco handbag with patent lock supposed to contain valuables there could be no doubt as to the person indicated it was half-past seven o'clock when edmund stanton read the advertisement he was at the london bridge station at eight and at a quarter past was on his way to new haven he had to wait upwards of an hour at lewis and it was eleven by the time he reached the end of his journey here he encountered only disappointment and perplexity awaited him the landlady had a strange story to tell him she had sent the advertisement to the times on the preceding friday by the advice of the medical man who saw the possibility of the patient's fever developing into typhus or typhoid the landlady had been terrified by the mere suggestion of such a thing and was for removing the patient at once to the county hospital this the doctor had pronounced impossible she was too ill to bear such a journey and the most that could be done would be to remove her to some adjacent lodging there to await communications from friends who might see the times advertisement this was done immediately and it happened curiously that from the hour of removal the sufferer began to mend she was calmer and the fever considerably reduced by saturday night on sunday she was able to leave her bed the next day the improvement was still more marked the patient was calm and sensible opened her bag and produced a purse from which she gave the doctor a twenty-pound note for the landlady of the hotel and a ten-pound note on account of his own services on monday evening the nurse who had charge of the patient ventured to leave her for a little while in order to go into the village upon some errand according to this woman's statement she was only absent a quarter of an hour but on her return the patient was gone the nurse had left her dressed and lying on the sofa search was immediately made but vainly the time of the patient's disappearance was within a few minutes of the time at which the boat started for dieppe but nobody had thought of going to the pier or suggested the idea of the patient having gone on board the steamer till too late when the same steamer returned to new haven it was ascertained that a lady dressed in black answering the description of the nameless fever patient had crossed on the last voyage to dieppe no one had remarked where she went or whether she was met by any one on the arrival of the steamer i'm afraid the poor dear young lady must be a little queer in her head said the landlady with a sympathetic air that twenty-pound note had paid her very well for the beef teas and arrow-roots made for the invalid dr folcott says that she must have endangered her life by that foolish journey for though she seemed to get round so quickly she was as weak as a baby and only keeping herself up by some inward excitement she was just in the state for a relapse there is no boat till to-morrow i suppose said mr stanton no sir not till to-morrow morning at ten then i shall cross by that boat dieppe is not a large place it will go hard with me if i do not find this lady 
if the landlady expected some enlightenment as to the circumstances of her nameless guest she was doomed to disappointment mr stanton thanked her for her care of the helpless traveller but told her nothing he called on the local surgeon next morning and heard his opinion of the case it was not cheering edmund stanton was in dieppe before dark that evening going quietly from place to place inquiring for the fugitive after two hours diligent search he found her at a third-rate hotel in the town a small room on the fourth story paved with red tiles she was lying on a narrow bed in a low alcove with a sister of mercy sitting on a rush-bottomed chair by the bedside counting her beads and whispering prayers while the patient lay in a slumber that seemed more restless than the most unquiet wakefulness sylvia had struggled hard to go on on she knew not whither to paris or anywhere but had broken down at the dieppe railway station where she found herself hardly able to stand she tottered to the waiting-room and here was seen by the good sister of mercy who finding her helpless and friendless took her in charge put her into a hackney carriage and had her conveyed to the hotel where she was now lying before nightfall the fever was again at its height and the dreaded typhoid speedily declared itself the dieppe doctor ordered cooling drinks bled the patient two or three times exercised all his skill for the one great end of reducing the system in this he had succeeded to admiration and the patient thus robbed of forces which might have fought the disease had succumbed to the fever one look at that wasted face those glassy eyes which opened and looked at him without recognition told edmund stanton that the end was inevitable how near or how distant that end might be he knew not he telegraphed to london for the famous dr crow reckless of the sacrifice of the doctor's time and his own money feeling very sure that it was too late for any good to be done by the wisest physician upon earth but anxious to do the uttermost for this wreck of humanity which had once been his idol the great doctor telegraphed a prompt reply it was impossible for him to come to dieppe but he would send dr daw a star of secondary magnitude in the medical world for dr daw's arrival mr stanton waited patiently but not hopefully he shared the sister's watch beside that sick-bed his hand held the cup of cooling drink to those parched lips heedless of what poison might lurk in the burning breath that seemed almost to sear his face as he bent over the sufferer how changed she was that lovely sylvia whose beauty had been so fatal a gift the red-gold hair had been shorn close to the small head by the nurse's scissors the once oval cheek was now hollowed and cavernous the jaw square and bony and those eyes lamps of splendour were now dull and lightless could there be keener agony than to mark such decay and to remember how he had loved her and to feel that he loved her still that she was dear to him in her misery dear to him despite her guilt once during the long hours of his watch the sufferer awaked suddenly from a sleep that had been somewhat quieter than that restless doze in which she was wont to lie the dark eyes were slowly turned towards him and gazed at him with the gradual dawn of recognition the words that followed denoted that although sylvia knew her lover she had no consciousness of late events or the place where she was i thought you wouldn't leave me edmund just before our wedding she said in her feeble tremulous voice but you've been away so long and i have been lying here with that dark woman watching me that woman over there in the black gown why don't you send her away you know i detest black 
i wore mourning so long for sir aubrey but that is all over now and my wedding dress is ready i showed it to you didn't i edmund such lovely point lace fit for a duchess but not too good for your wife i want to look my best that day what have they done with my hair she cried passing her thin fingers over her head with a weak uncertain movement they haven't cut it off have they they couldn't be so cruel as that i was always praised for my hair though some of the headingham girls called it red is it all gone am i in prison edmund for some dreadful crime could they put me in prison for that there were fitful pauses between these broken sentences and many of the words were imperfect and indistinct only the keen ear of affection could have intercepted those rambling utterances of half-consciousness edmund soothed and comforted the sufferer murmured words of hope spoke of another world that world whose mystic gates stood ajar vain effort the shallow worldly mind was still given to earthly things had neither care nor hope beyond earth is to-day our wedding-day edmund she asked don't deceive me i am not too ill to go to the church let me get up and be dressed where is celine send that dark woman away and bring me celine i know my wedding-dress has come home why do you turn from me like that edmund and hide your face in your hands there is no one who can prevent our marriage sir aubrey is safe then followed long intervals of silence and then wandering words that had no meaning even for edmund's attentive ear he watched beside that bed day and night while the patient sister of mercy sat in a corner behind the bed-curtain where sylvia could not see her and prepared the medicines and fever drinks and directed mr standon's ministrations and prayed with all the fervour of her simple soul for the fading sinner dr daw came but could do nothing except pronounce that the dieppe surgeon had been altogether at fault and prescribe a new mode of treatment which had it been adopted earlier might have saved the patient but which could now only prolong life and lengthen the weariness of dying the life thus protracted watched with unremitting care lasted three or four days after dr daw's visit and then in the quiet midnight the tired sufferer slipped almost unawares into the undiscovered country love watched the last breath religion knelt by the bed and thus the worldly soul went forth from the region of human pity and affection into the awful solitude beyond whither no human imagination dared follow it once very near the end there came a gleam of light the lips which had been voiceless for many long hours moved faintly and edmund leaning down to catch the feeble whisper heard sylvia's last words kiss me once again before i go as you kissed me in the churchyard before i betrayed you living and dying lips met in the last kiss of a love that had been fatal End of chapters 66 and 67